Welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast, news, reviews and resources for ITAM SAM and software licensing professionals. Hi, my name is Martin Thompson from the ITAM Review and welcome to the ITAM Review Podcast. Uh, today we have uh, um, a few guests with us that are going to be um, discussing uh, Microsoft in virtual environments. Uh, I'm joined by uh, Matthias Knops from Aspera. Do you want to say hello, Matthias, and tell us about you and your company? Yeah, hello, good morning, thank you. Uh, my name is Matthias Knops. I'm a senior product manager with Aspera. Aspera is a SAM solution provider for 15 years, and uh, with our solution SmartRide, we offer um, the technical platform for managing software like from Microsoft and as well in virtual devices, uh, virtual environments. Sorry. Perfect, thank you. And we're also joined by uh, Robert and Mark from Concord. Gentlemen, do you want to introduce yourselves? Uh, yeah, so it's uh, Rob Payton here. Um, I've been with Concord for around about a year. Uh, Concord, we offer a range of asset management services, including compliance, risk, and audit defense, license optimization for most of the main software vendors, mainly Microsoft, Oracle, IBM, VMware, uh, and Symantec. Um, prior to that, my uh, credentials, I've come from a sales background with, uh, with Dell for, for eight years, and prior to that, Microsoft. Um, so I've been in licensing for just over 10 years now, uh, with a range of experience in different products. Great, thank you. And Mark? Hello there. I'm, as Mark has mentioned, I'm Mark Hobson. I'm also with Concord. I've been here for about two years. Very similar background to Rob. In fact, we've worked together as colleagues for about six years now uh, throughout various different roles. Um, my specialty within Concord is more around uh, cluster architectures and uh, data center virtualization, which is why I've been asked to back up on the call here today. I'm actually involved in some of the development processes behind the tools as well as being an analyst, so I may be able to answer a few more questions if there's any uh, content on that required. Perfect, thank you. So. One of the um, key, um, you know, one of the most popular vendors out there is obviously Microsoft in in, in large organizations environments, and um, we're re repeatedly told that virtualization is a tricky area to manage for Microsoft. So, um, first of all, I wanted to to pick your brains, guys, about what do you see as uh, the most popular way of virtualizing Microsoft. So, the the, the, the obvious ones that spring to mind are. You know, you take something like SQL and you can put it on VMware or you can put it in Hyper-V and in your data center, or you might want to stream Microsoft using Citrix. Um, what, what are the other methods out there that you see? What, what's the most popular? And, and maybe if you could share about what you're seeing as trends or, or things that are happening in terms of virtualization. If I could come to you first, Matthias, what, what's your view on that? Yeah, I think it's necessary to differentiate between uh, the server and the desktop components. I think if you if you think about Windows and, and SQL Server and so on, you might have uh, basically two virtualization techniques, the software and the hardware virtualization part, whereas I believe uh, it's safe to say that uh, that VMware is the, the majority of the software virtualization environment or is done with VMware uh, in that case. Hardware virtualization scenarios uh, are usually used for something else, but sometimes you will find a SQL server on an AIX uh, uh, from IBM or HPUX machine or whatever. And on the um, on the client side, on the desktop virtualization area, I would uh, absolutely agree. Um, we we see uh, VDI and VDA technologies, and then uh, that is usually done 
through a terminal server or Citrix environment, as, as you said. So I think that the, those are um, those five-ish um, uh, technologies would cover the majority of the situations that we encounter. And just for the for those that listeners that are just starting out and getting their head around how virtualization works, could you explain the difference between um, software and hardware virtualization, and also VDI and VDA for for those of you that you know that just get into grips with things? Yeah, so I, I, so the technically the the difference between software and hardware virtualization is uh, is not so eminent. You have you have always a um, a, a management console in which you assign resources to the virtual guests, but it's just the the, the or for the license part, the most important thing is that uh, so uh, the hardware virtualization is acknowledged further in restricting the resources that are available to the virtual machines by manufacturers. Microsoft is not that big; uh, it's, it's not that problematic here. It's it's usually more in the field of, of IBM and, and Oracle that we're seeing those things. Uh, Microsoft is actually kind of uh, uh, flexible, also in terms of software virtualization, which can be a massive problem with the other manufacturers. And uh, in terms of the client virtualization, we are looking at either complete desktop application or complete desktops that are available in the, in the Citrix environment. If you're sitting in front of your, your terminal server and you're just uh, basically working on a server and your, 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 your workstation is not a workstation, but it's just a, I don't know, a window to, uh, to, to, to the server. And um, the other part would be uh, streaming separate applications. So you're just working on your um, on your normal uh, workstation laptop or desktop or whatever. And uh, for instance, the VCO installation that you're running is not installed locally on your machine, but it's streamed as a seamless app uh, from, from your Citrix uh, environment, for instance. Those are the, the, the most um, uh, situations that we, that we see in, in, in real uh, life. So your, my, my uh, simple way of thinking of it is uh, for hardware virtualization is you have a big piece of tin and via virtualization, you're slicing it up into manageable chunks. And the reason Microsoft is slightly easier with that is because they don't they license they don't license by the power of the machine, do they? Is that my, that is that right way of understanding it? Whereas IBM and yeah. Oracle would. Yeah, yeah, I think you can. They they also have metrics, of course, that are that are based on the number of CPUs or cores. But uh, this is usually not the the, the big problem here um, because. Um, they, they accept that you would uh, see such a slice for the virtual machine as as the given resource and therefore you can license the virtual environment whereas usually uh, for, for software um, virtualization you have to license the physical way uh, the, the physical layer this is not exclusive so it's uh, there, there are exceptions to those things but uh, usually that is the case there's a lot more to it which we might be discussing later with uh, software assurance um, uh, enabling you to, to use the license mobility or uh, host affinity rules and so on and so forth but this is a different, uh, this is a different story and Robert and Mark have you got a, a view on this what, what are you seeing as the most popular ways of virtualizing Microsoft and, and, and what are you seeing out there in the market so certainly from the point of view of clients we're dealing with at the moment it's Overwhelmingly the case that for Microsoft virtualization, we're looking at a hypervisor setup. So for those of you that may be joining the, the sort of course for the first time, hypervisor virtualization is where you take a, a pool of physical machines, uh, install a piece of hypervisor software like VMware's ESX or the Hyper-V hypervisor, 
and then treat all of those resources as one pool to run virtual machines. Now, from a licensing point of view, which I'm sure Rob is going to go into more depth later on, that does mean that there are several rules you need to pay attention to, because a lot of the rules depend on exactly where physically the software is sitting, unless you have certain rights, um, as Mateus just mentioned, such as software assurance. We're finding that it's an incredibly popular technology to use, because uh, it's relatively easy to manage, gives you a lot of high, uh, high availability in the, in the data center. And it's also relatively well understood, understood by architects. The issues that we're finding, however, is that a lot of the licensing rules around licensing in a hypervisor setup where virtual machines can uh, effectively migrate between different physical hosts aren't clearly understood by the client base. So we're tending to find that when people implement this kind of technology, they're tripping themselves up by not quite understanding the implications of the setup that put into play. Um, yeah, so there's, there's two two layers to that. So you're not only are you you're clustering a load of devices together to act as one machine, but then you're virtualizing that big machine into a, a series of different devices to serve different purposes. Uh, is that is that a correct that's way of understanding right. it? Yes, that's exactly right. It's uh, it's quite a popular approach these days. Certainly, with now the technology is a bit more mature, and uh, it's been around for certainly at least ten years. It's been extremely popular for most of that. Um, the majority of the benefit of it there is not only can you use effectively cheaper machines than you otherwise would, so instead of having to buy the more expensive early architected eight processor servers, for instance, and then dividing it all up into small chunks, you could buy four two processor servers, which would normally come in at a lower, at a lower dollar value. It also means that if a single machine drops out, it's less critical to your business. So again, taking the example of four two processor machines versus one eight processor machine, if you lose that eight processor machine, you're in trouble because all of your virtual machines are running on that. Whereas if you lost one of the two processor machines, you could redistribute the workload over the other three while you got it back up. So if we um, if we look at a cluster or any other way of virtualizing Microsoft, how should we best go about licensing this? So if I'm if I'm a brand new software asset manager and I'm trying to work out what my business has done in terms of licensing in, in the data center. Um, what should I be doing first and where do people typically fall foul and get tripped up with licensing in terms of data center and licensing? And that, that's, um, like, that's, to, that's to anyone. Uh, Rob, I'll leave that one to you. Okay, uh, well, the way that, uh, the things we've noticed recently with uh, where a lot of customers are falling over is where, well, it's, it's a few things. First of all, uh, mobility tends to catch people out. So your customers will maybe approach their resellers or, or their asset management company and they'll get in mind a particular solution that they want to run and they'll architect that in, in a particular way. Um, what often happens is they don't account for mobility and they end up, um, when it comes to establishing a compliance position, um, they find a shortfall, a considerable shortfall, uh, based on really just a, a lack of planning. Uh, this can often be as a result of maybe not proper conversations with people who are architecting the uh, solution. Maybe they'll go to a reseller and just tell them we need a couple of SQL licenses and not explain why that or how that's going to be used, uh, and that can get them into trouble quite a lot. And, and just to, um, just just to clarify, what what do you mean by mobility? Okay, so if you have a if, if you have a, a cluster situation where you have uh, two hosts within a single cluster. Um, let's say you install SQL on a virtual machine on one host, 
Um, you need to account for the fact that uh, with regards to maybe you're using vMotion as part of VMware, uh, that virtual machine can move anywhere within that particular cluster, so from one host to the other. Um, Microsoft require that you account for that essentially. So if you have a license on one host, you need to have a second license on another host. Alternatively, you can add software assurance and that will allow you to move that virtual machine from one host to another. But again, you need to be aware that that's, um, that's a potential movement uh, and account for that with your licensing. It's not always the case that you're going to actually do that, but the fact that you could do that is, means you have to actually license it. So, so with that, we have customers as well who, who also will try and uh, take advantage of their existing estate. Maybe they have older versions of, uh, of software, uh, maybe they've got prior versions of SQL, they've been running 2008 or 2, and they then want to implement or upgrade to 2012, 2014. Um, the licensing rules are vastly different for those, for those versions. And maybe a little bit of knowledge on 2008 or 2, a customer will think that they know what they're doing and how to license that particular scenario when they go to implement a newer version. And the licensing rules changed and, and they're just not aware of, of how that goes. So they really need to be aware of how Microsoft changes their licensing rules as the technology evolves. Matthias, anything to add on that in terms of the uh, common pitfalls and where people get tripped up with virtualization? I think it's always related to uh, a very um, a very concrete understanding of the of the state of every uh, customer. So if you know what you have installed where, and if you have successfully um, successfully uh, performed all the virtualization projects in the past, you might end up with a very uh, heterogeneous uh, environment where you have your SQL service installed this uh, in this and that and another third area of your network. So. Um, to consolidate those things, this is, this is usually something that, that comes up quite often these days, so that uh, customers are building up the first um, understanding of their of their of their estate there, and then uh, consolidating those things. And with that, uh, it's always um, uh, it's always a good idea to involve somebody with a little bit of uh, uh, background knowledge on SAM. Um, the real life, unfortunately, usually says that uh, the architects will never consult the the, the SAM managers. Asking what would be the, the appropriate way to to set up the, um, uh, the service and so on, um, so they have to change it a little bit. And then there are some other possibilities as well to make use of of, of features and functionality. So um, we've heard a little bit about uh, the vMotion aspect that uh, that allows um, hosts to jump from one to another. Um, uh, sorry, for guests to jump from one to another host. Um, this can also be reported on with uh, with standard VMware um, or vCenter functionalities, and then you can even see uh, or say that if uh, if a VM has not jumped, then you don't have to license both possibilities. That is sometimes even uh, acknowledged by Microsoft, depending on how close you work with the manufacturer. If it's a situation where a, a customer works traditionally against the, the the vendor, then this is usually something that is not possible. But if you are working together. You do those uh, uh, tiny little uh, self-audit uh, or friendly license review um, things and so on, and you, you open up to the manufacturer a little bit, then this is usually um, a way to negotiate possibilities in your contracts that it's possible not to deactivate the motion, but to use it and, and to keep it, to keep it active, but license it as if you would uh, um, uh, 
use those host affinity rules, which say that this very one um, guest can only run on one or two physical servers, and that, that there there is a restriction on that. So there are possible ways to cut down uh, the, the, the license de uh, demand, but most of them are um, agreed only on a deal by deal basis, and they are not uh, common uh, common rights. So if I'm a new software asset manager and I'm looking at the data center, you're you're suggesting that I look at mobility to make sure, you know, to see if mobility is enabled and whether my VMs can move from place to place. You need you're saying that we need to look at the cl what's clustered and what's what's uh, what what how things are structured and just get an understanding of the overall estate and how things are built. Is there anything else that I should be looking for when I'm I'm doing this? Again, question open to all. I would say as well, just be aware of uh, how your solution may change in the future as well. Um, let's say you license your, your solution perfectly right now. Uh, you have two clusters or, or two hosts in a cluster. You have um, every, you know, mobility taken care of. All your licensing rules, all your exceptions are, are understood and, and uh, accounted for. Well, then let's say you later on in the year, you add an extra host to that cluster. Well, then your licensing needs change and you need to purchase additional licensing and you need to re-architect that solution. So I'd say if you are uh, creating a new solution from scratch, just be aware of how that can uh, affect things further on down the line when, uh, when your needs change. Sorry, just on a, on a similar note to that one on there, it's also worth bearing in mind that as asset managers, um, we normally find a situation where the environment is changing dynamically and not necessarily within our control. Um, obviously, different organizations structure things differently. Some asset managers have more control of the process than others. A key point, uh, as Rob's just raised there, is keeping track of change. So as human beings, if we go through a large list of numbers, we're extremely good at seeing patterns and almost seeing what we want to see most of the time. We are less good at going through a series of numbers and spotting small changes. And in this sort of environment where the, say, the number of vCPUs assigned to a specific virtual machine can change whenever an administrator chooses to change it, we are less good at seeing that small change which can have a massive impact on licensing. And that's where um, a tool to automate this sort of process really does come in because it will then flag that to your attention rather than relying on an individual human being being able to spot a, a small change in one cell on quite possibly an extremely large output from a tool. So that, that leads me on quite nicely to my next question, which is um, what solutions, processes or systems exist out there to help people? Um, so, so the typical environment that we would speak to, um, they, would, um, they would have one or, or several data centers and they might have something like SCCM or Altris or something on the desktop for, for inventory of the desktop. They typically won't do very rigorous inventory of the data center. They might run scripts now and again to find out what they have. Uh, and we would be going in there to, 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 to suggest that they be, be looking at SAM and looking at the data center first for, for savings. Um, so, so bearing in mind that you both, both companies provide solutions in this area and obviously you, you, you have some technologies to bring to the table, could you perhaps both share what the art of the possible is? You know, what, what is out there that, to help me manage virtualization in, the, in this area? Yeah, well, okay. Um, I would say that the, 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 the most important part is to build that 
um, that knowledge that I referred to, uh, or that understanding that I referred to as um, effort, um, that you have a, an understanding which um, virtualization technologies you're running in which areas of your data centers that you have one central repository that you can uh, that you can consult on that and that this one is is rather uh, actual or recent so that it's it's updated on a regular basis um, because especially in the, in, in the uh, virtualization environments uh, you have very vastly changing um, uh, situations and therefore you need to be on top of that with an automated discovery and automated um, uh, data delivery into into that very um, central um, repository. And if you have that understanding, then it's it's up to you. If if you have a, a chosen for a solution that um, that can help you with uh, with with maybe suggesting some changes or that if it's either um, possible at all to to change your um, environments uh, or if your environment details and so on. If that's not possible, then you can at least uh, trigger some processes that. Uh, that would um, ensure that the licensing situation is, is done properly and so on. So this is, I think the key is always uh, the, the um, granular and, and the accurate knowledge about and, and understanding of, of the um, uh, IT estate that you're looking at. Uh, and Robert and Mark, anything to add there? Yeah, absolutely. So I am, there are a wealth of tools out there on the market at the moment for uh, administering and discovering software. Every single one of them relies on discovering. Um, so without a good discovery tool, then you are really going to struggle to keep handle on your software state. Now, from a, from certainly from our point of view, and I'm sure it's the same from many other vendors, it doesn't actually matter over much what discovery tool it is. It's the quality of the output that's important. Exactly. So the main thing I'd stress there is pick a discovery tool, whichever one you're going to be going with, whichever one your organization deems that you need to use, and then get really familiar with it. You need to know what it does, you need to know what it doesn't do, you need to know where it covers, you need to know where it doesn't cover. And then you also need to know, for those gaps, how you're going to plug them. The best tool in the world, with all of the uh, sort of technology behind it, like the tools that both Concord and Aspira can, uh, can sell, if you don't feed it the right information in, isn't going to give you the correct answer. It's just not going to do it. So there will always be a need for someone on site or possibly adding, uh, depending on what your organization looks like, to have control of the discovery tool and have intimate knowledge of that estate to know exactly where everything is. To give you an example, um, one of the problems we regularly run into is people running SCCF and we're trying to discover their SQL, which is well and good. We'll quite happily discover where a SQL instance is. We'll happily discover what version of SQL it is, so 2008, 2008. Uh, AR2, 2012, so on and so forth. SCCM has a real problem in most estates actually discovering what addition it is because it can't query the, data set, uh, the database itself to get into that data without special permissions. And that's providing an enormous problem to some of the enterprise companies that we're dealing with at the moment. So what you need at that stage in order to clarify that, bear in mind that the difference in licensing between SQL Standard and SQL Enterprise can differ by a factor of 10 quite comfortably. So you're talking about moving from hundreds to thousands of pounds per instance. You need someone on that estate to go through that data, know that, 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 I, that the gap is going to be there, and then take measures in order to close that. Once you've then got that data set, then yes, of course, there are several tools out, on, out there on the environment, core control from Concord being one of them, which you can then feed that data into, and it will do a lot of the work for you. And of course, you will still need 
prepared to spend some time going through the reports, checking it, making sure that, that it's not flagged up another hole in the data that you possibly didn't see. Um, but the real key is making sure that your discovery is as complete as you can and that your knowledge of the discovery is as complete as you can. So, so um, you mentioned SQL Server there. Um, in terms of basic requirements for discovery and, and inventory in the data center, we, uh, my understanding is that you'll need um, to discover all of your virtual machines and then the relationship with those virtual machines with the um, hypervisor or the cluster that they're in. Um, it, a lot of that will be provided by VMware or would you need tools for that? What, what are the requirements for, for doing a good job of that? really depends on where you're taking it from. Um, SCCM will do a lot of that for you, as will ADDM. Um, so quite often you will be able to put, run a script through um, PowerShell scripts on most discovery tools and discover what the parent operating system instance of a specific VM is. So I just realized I've used a lot of acronyms in there. Um, essentially what we're looking at for any virtual machine is what physical machine is, is it running on right now. Um, from a licensing point of view, it's less than helpful, but it gives us a start. It gives us that first link. You'll then also be able to run either the same uh, as part of the same script or as a different command, depends on how you write them, exactly what the relationship between the different hosts are, and that will give you your full cluster layout. You don't necessarily need to go into, say, a VMware's vCenter and pull all of that information separately, although it can help if that's a gap in your data set. It's a perfectly valid way of doing it. Um, and what, the other thing you need to bear in mind as well, of course, is then if that, uh, those virtual machines have a failover arrangement elsewhere, and for those sort of arrangements, you will need to go into the specific tool that is managing your disaster recovery and pull that information from there. So, for instance, if you're using, say, uh, the MWS Site Recovery Manager, the relationships for the failover will be held within the vCenter instance that's managing that. Or if you're using another technology, the same would apply with their management console. And forgive my ignorance, but what what um, is the best way of establishing which ha which uh, components have mobilization uh, uh, mobility enabled and, and not? Is that again is that a vCenter thing or Hyper V thing, or is that something that you can pick up using an inventory tool? That's not something you can normally pick up with an inventory tool. However, from what we've seen on the um, out in the market at the moment, it's actually comparatively rare to restrict virtual machine movement. A lot of the um, reasons for deploying a hypervisor cluster like the thing is the movement itself, so that you can optimize the uh, the usage of the hardware assets as and when you need to. If your administrators are restricting it, you would need to go into your management tool to find that. Um, what I would say as a sort of industry best practice is assume that everything's moving, yeah, and it's moving within its clusters, unless you're explicitly told otherwise. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, when your administrators turn around and tell you otherwise, you can then start taking it into account. Yeah, good advice, good advice. Okay, so we, we've spoken a lot about um, uh, clusters and, and virtual machines. Could we just touch on um, Citrix and the ability to stream software? So I think you, you both mentioned the fact that I will perhaps use something like Visio. Uh, but I won't actually use it on my desktop. I'll be streaming it somehow from from a, a, a server or 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 somewhere. Um, is there anything to think about in terms of how we go about licensing that? I guess it's just a case of um, who has access to the ability to stream. Is that all I need to worry about, or is there anything else I need to worry about with that? 
Yeah, I would say that uh, um, basically what has to be licensed is usually who is using what. But this this is, an, uh, this is a level of detail that only uh, very few customers can, or, or only a very few tool ca uh, tools can provide. So as a fallback, you always look at uh, who is able to use what. And that is usually done by analyzing uh, the, the permissions, uh, who has permissions to use which application, um, which is our... Um, Again, the best practice approach and uh, the one that we are usually encountering is uh, that, uh, that those permissions are maintained in the Active Directory group. So people are members of groups. Groups are, um, are privileged for using some applications. So therefore, if you understand who is a member of which group and which group is, is, is entitled to use which application, then you can make up the, the, the usage or the demand for, uh, for those licenses. But that is uh, then um, uh, falling back to to the client side or to the to the device side, where sometimes people with fixed devices, with uh, desktops or laptops, um, and, and they're exclusively assigned to those devices, and those devices again are unable to to run uh, or to, to access a terminal server or Citrix environment. Then you have to to look at, uh, for instance, secondary copyrights if you have Visio installed on your terminal server session, but also running that locally, then you usually don't have to license it twice. So this, this adds a new, a new layer of, um, or new level of, of complexity to, uh, to the whole situation. Um, but this is usually what is done. So some, sometimes um, people have dedicated um, solutions providing those details. Citrix Edge site would be a, a data source for uh, the information. Uh, which user uh, has accessed which application and so on, but this is this is rarely uh, rarely the case. Usually, we are extracting those details from from Active Directory and, and the other um, uh, directory services. And Robert and Mark, any any points on that? Any um, any advice in terms of managing those sorts of environments? A small thing to add in there, uh, Matthias is entirely right on what he's saying, you know, that most of the information you're looking for is held in Active Directory. And obviously the licensing of the individual products does vary depending on exactly how you purchased it. Uh, so for instance, if you're running Office as a standard license, it would be licensed on a per device, so you license it on the client side. If you were running it through Office 365, uh, it would be on a per user basis and each user would be, would be allowed five machines. So that will change the way you look at the data as you're pulling it through. The most important thing though, is record keeping and making sure that you're on top of it. So what we've found, uh, again, through the industry is that active directories, unless they are policed uh, almost militantly, really, is they tend to suffer a substantial creep in people's accounts. So say, for instance, an employee uh, loses their login details. Sometimes they'll just get a second login created for them and they'll start using that quite happily. That will appear as two records in active directory. And unless you know that that is supposed to be the same person, you may well apply two user licenses to that one person, which from a data standpoint makes sense. From a compliance perspective, you don't need to. You've, just, you've literally just bought one person two licenses. So you really do need to be on top of your active directory estate to make sure that your record keeping is as tight as it possibly can. It gets even more complicated when you have multiple active directory domains. So say you've got uh, one site in London and one site in Glasgow, and both of them operate on the same domain. And you have someone that travels up and down from Glasgow to London and vice versa on a regular basis. They'll have a login registered in the Active Directory for each site. And again, unless you know that those logins both relate to the same person, you might end up thinking, I need to license this twice. So you need to be very, very careful not to get duplicate records in there or when
when duplicate records have to be in there, in the case of the multiple domains scenario I've just painted out there, you need to know how you can reconcile those back to a single person. Yeah, yeah, good advice. And I think when um, in an audit scenario as well, if your Active Directory is not in shape, they're going to just take it at face value, aren't they? They're going to, you know, unless you have the evidence to show um, uh, what you have, then they're just going to take whatever's in Active Directory as it stands. They're not going to scrutinise it. Absolutely that. Um, it, it can even become worse than that. If, like I say, if it's not regularly policed, that you could get old records in there. So you, if you were in an audit scenario, you may be looking at licensing users that have left the company several years ago if you've not removed their active directory records from the system yeah although in practice with an appropriate asset manager on um as part of the audit support um we would normally be able to argue that away by saying this this account has not been used for over 12 months but again that's an audit defense setup rather than anything that's strictly compliance based so the best practice is of course to avoid the scenario in the first place yeah yeah, we're looking at those uh, those situations. So we we uh, we made up a name. We have uh, two reports on that. Uh, we call them orphaned devices and orphaned users. Uh, maybe that is uh, Germans trying to speak English, but um, uh, it's basically devices without an inventory or users without any inventory information. Um, inventory and, and, and quotation marks because it's usually something else. But um, so that that might discover um, or show up uh, some. Um, Active Directory uh, zombies, so devices that have already been replaced or still in the ID, or users that have left the company or switched over to another ID or whatever, so that you can at least see, um, I have 10,000 users, but actually I'm employing only 9,000, so that is a discrepancy of 1,000, so I have to, to deal with them. Uh, there might Those might be system uh, users or accounts and so on, but you can basically filter them out quite easily, so in the very end you should end up with... Uh, with the data of people or of devices that are still in the Active Directory but not being active anymore. Yeah, and, and as with most things with Sam, it's a case of uh, putting the necessary processes in place uh, so that those zombies don't exist in the future. <laughs> exactly. So, so final final question for you, gentlemen. Um, we, you know, traditionally, Sam has been um, clearing up the mess afterwards, like finding out what's been installed and built, and then trying to fathom out how to license it afterwards, or, or rather, what's been uh, agreed afterwards, so that, that you know we, a reconciliation can take place. What we're seeing more and more, uh, which I'm very pleased to see, is um, people actually considering Sam before they're building data centers, before they're virtualizing things, and they're actually uh, thinking about Sam proactively. Uh, and we're seeing, uh, and uh, one of the, one of the outputs of this is we're seeing a lot more enterprise architect-like positions subscribing to the ITM review with an interest in this area. Um, and, and I heard of the job title cost architect as well recently, which is very good to hear. Um, and I'm just thinking, if 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 you were to, you know, what advice would you give to people if they were to build these things and and optimize and virtualize? What what advice can we give to people that are building these things in, in terms of making it soundproof from the from the from the get go? And any points on that? Um, well, I would I would suggest that um, if they do have a resource, a SAM resource, whether it be a company like our own or whether it be a reseller, that they continue to make use of that resource. Um, the worst thing that that you can have with regards to licensing is a little bit of knowledge. A little bit of knowledge will lead you down the wrong path nine times out of ten. Um, what you really need is someone who's up to date, uh, who knows their staff, 
and continues to invest in their, their knowledge with licensing as it progresses. New products come out, uh, licensing changes is, in, is inevitable. Um, so I would suggest that you know make use of the resources that you have um, as, as best as possible. Make sure you plan ahead for any changes that uh, may happen with your solution. Uh, if you feel that uh, your organization is going to grow and the needs of your IT architecture is going to grow, then make sure you account for that uh, up front because further down the line, you may find that uh, it's going to cost you a lot more uh, in the long run. So, so yeah, I, I would say a bit of planning and uh, just basically making use of the, the resources that you have at hand. And Matthias, any final points on that one? Yeah, with the second and first part here. So, the, uh, first of all, it's, 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 uh, I think it's always a mistake to do SAM uh, in addition to something. So, you should work on that exclusively. And as a SAM manager, as a responsible SAM manager, you should work with the architects. Uh, and I think uh, it's, um, it's proven that if you approach um, the infrastructure people and try to understand their needs and why they are doing things, it's like selling something. It's like selling an idea internally. Um, it's always a good. It's always a good approach to understand first why they do things, and then may uh, with that understanding make up uh, other suggestions that uh, with the same background or with the same knowledge in, uh, in the back of your head. So, uh, not a good idea would be to to go there and say uh, I'm the SAM manager and you have to follow my advice here. So that that usually doesn't work. And uh, even in our days where software spend is, is uh, sometimes a lot more um, uh, than, than the hardware investment, um, people are still, um, or the, 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 the architects, they, they still sometimes argue uh, in a way that uh, there is no other way to do it. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the business critical application, so we have to install it exactly like that. And uh, you, uh, Mr. Sam Manager, can go away and come back if you have a solution uh, for your problem, but it's not open. So that, that's, always a problem, uh, that's always the situation. So work together with the architects, with the infrastructure people, and then usually they, they can provide you with the necessary data, but they will also provide you with the information maybe up front, and then you can, you can uh, work out a process where uh, uh, both, um, both worlds can influence uh, the, the course of the whole, uh, of the whole IT structure. So thank you very much, gentlemen, for allowing us to pick your brains around um, virtualization. I found that very interesting about um, uh, this discussion. Um, if any of our listeners uh, have any further questions around licensing and virtualization, please either uh, drop us a line, leave a comment on the blog post that, that you found this uh, podcast, or ask in our LinkedIn group, and it would be good to share more information on this. Uh, we are hosting a couple of events, one on the 17th of September around Microsoft licensing, that's in London, and then we take that to New York on the 21st of October, again around Microsoft licensing. Uh, so please come and join us for those two free events, and you can meet the Concord and Aspera teams there too. Uh, so thank you very much, gentlemen, for your time, and until next time, thanks for listening.